I think it's important, for, particularly from a Christian perspective, because it allows us to avoid the Pharisee's prayer. We thank you, Lord, that we're not like other men, like the LGBTQ plus people over here, or like the, the consumerists over here, the expressive individualists. I think once we realize that we are all uh, complicit in this culture of expressive individualism, then it, it really encourages us to, to make our, mer- our first move one of, I would say, confession and repentance. Does doctrine really matter? The Apostle Paul once wrote to a young pastor named Titus, instructing him to hold firm to the trustworthy word he was taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. Welcome to Credo Podcast where doctrine matters and theological ideas have consequences. Here's your host, Dr. Matthew Barrett, executive editor of Credo Magazine and associate professor of Christian theology at Midwestern Seminary. Welcome to the Credo Podcast, where doctrine matters. I am Matthew Barrett, your host. If there is any topic that is controversial in our own day, even among evangelical, even Reformed Christians, it has to be the topic of sexuality. Today, we live really in a century that has redefined sexuality, redefined what it means uh, for us to be even sexual human beings. And at the center of this redefinition is, well, something that is quite disturbing, I think I could say that, but also quite game-changing, and it's really assumed in what I just said, that we get to define sexuality. But it's not just that we see ourselves as really the authors of our sexual identity, whatever that may be today, but we also have transitioned to see, well, this new sexual identity as the core of our existence, as the very meaning, the very purpose of our existence sometimes as that which is all-encompassing. What's even more striking is that in the 21st century, traditional definitions of sexuality, well, they have been discarded in many ways, redefined, and new definitions have been normalized. And this, of course, is not a secret. We see it every time we turn on the TV, maybe it's watching the news, anytime we watch a pop culture television show or listen to music, but it's also rooted, even if we don't know it, it's also rooted in many long-going academic discussions. What have been some of the responses of Christians in the last century? Well, sometimes we just resort to saying, well, that's sin, or this is what the Bible says, and when it's not accepted, we just talk louder, maybe even scream a little bit louder. One of the things I appreciate, though, about history is that it actually moves beyond that shouting match to try to understand some of the reasons why we believe what we believe and perhaps even identify where we've gone wrong. Could it be that the story we find ourselves in is really not just a story about sexuality or a controversy about sexuality, but could it be something more? Could it be that we have redefined the self, and what it means to be human to begin with. Well, this is one of the things I love about Carl Truman is, as a historian, he not only looks at present-day controversies, but he takes us back into the past to understand where our story comes from and what are some of the deeper historical, even theological issues that underlie so many of the controversies of today. Well, I think our listeners know Carl from so many of his books. He is professor of biblical and religious studies at Grove City College in Grove City, Pennsylvania. I, of course, am very proud to say he's also a fellow uh, here at Credo. You can go onto the Credo website and uh, read so much about Carl Truman there. He's contributed in so many ways in the past, and I would encourage you to look at some of his resources on credomag.com. He's also a fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy in D.C. And he's written a variety of books. Uh, His most recent book from 2020 is The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution. He's written many books in history and historical theology, such as John Owen, Reformed Catholic Renaissance Man, 
grace alone, salvation as a gift of God, and Luther on the Christian life. Carl, as always, it's so good to have you on the Credo Podcast. It's great to be here, uh, Matthew. And you make me sound like such a great guy when you introduce <laughs> me. I'm happy to come back anytime. It's very therapeutic hearing what a wonderful person I am. <laughs> well, then my job's done. And uh, no, but seriously, we, we love having you on. Uh, this, of course, isn't the first time you've been on. Our listeners will, will definitely want to go back and, and uh, listen to some of your your uh, older uh, podcast episodes. Carl, really the only reason I have you on is because I just know you're going to say something provocative. <laughs> I, I never do that. <laughs> Everybody loves me. finds me rather bland. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. That must, that, that, it must make your book so boring. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's wonderful to have you on again, Carl. Um, always appreciate uh, the historical insight you bring. Let's jump in to, uh, well, this present moment. But, of course, I know you, and I know that uh, we're not going to stay in the 21st century. You're going to take us back to the past, um, which is one of the things I love so much about your writing and about having uh, conversations like this. As I just mentioned, you know, in our own century, we are seeing just a struggle, um, even a fight, if I can call it, call it that, uh, over what it means to be man, what it means to be woman. Of course, this controversy over, uh, you know, it goes by many names, maybe sexual um, revolution comes to mind. This controversy isn't, you know, new to our day. It goes back at least back to the 1960s, though I think you would say even further back than that. Uh, But really it's one that uh, it is about sexual uh, vocabulary and language, uh, redefinition of language and identity, all that sort of thing. But it's actually about so much more. And this is one of the things uh, I, I really have appreciated about uh, some of your more recent arguments is that when you have gone back to, to look and study, say, the sexual revolution and, um, you know, it's it, it kind of rising to the surface in the 1960s, uh, you, you've you've made a great point in saying that well, the sexual revolution is as much a symptom as it is a cause of the culture that that now surrounds us everywhere we look. And uh, I, I, the, one of the reasons I think this point is so so crucial is because it gets at something deeper. It gets it below the surface to say could could the mess we're finding ourselves in this revolution and, and all the consequences it brings, could this actually be about the self and, and the redefinition of the self in the West? Why is it, or, or maybe I could put it this way. Was it, was there something that triggered this thought uh, as you started to, to maybe rethink where the sexual revolution even came from? Yeah, it's a good question. I think the the key for me was reading Charles Taylor, the Canadian philosopher, and his notion of the social imaginary. He's not particularly dealing with the sexual revolution when he uh, articulates this notion of the social imaginary. But the point he makes when he uses this notion in in reflecting on, say, the secularization of the Western world and the, the nature of personhood in the in the Western world is that most of us don't think in terms of first principles. Most of us, in fact, all of us, I would say, relate to the world most of the time intuitively. And that means that, that things that, that may seem isolated and disparate in our experience are actually all part and parcel of the way we imagine the world to be. And I think that gave me the, the clue on the sexual revolution that actually... We don't think about sex in isolation. We don't understand the significance or lack of significance of sexual activity in isolation. It connects to how we think about a whole host of other things, how we intuit a whole host of other things in our world. And that drew me then to thinking about, okay, uh, what is it in the way that we imagine the world to be? that marks us off from from previous generations? Or or how have we come to imagine the world the way we now imagine it over a period of time? 
anybody, I think, looking on at the, at the speed and the success and the comprehensiveness of the sexual revolution would have to conclude that this is something that's been brewing for a long time and it is, it is the function or it is the result of a whole host of other factors that have come into place over a period of years or a number of centuries. So it was really, it was really Taylor's social imaginary idea and the, the notion that, or the, the basic realization that, wow, this is so comprehensive a transformation of Western society that it simply can't have started in the 1950s, 1960s. Societies simply don't change that fast and that comprehensively without a much deeper causal pattern lying behind them. You know, you mentioned uh, Charles Taylor. Uh, for our listeners, uh, Charles Taylor's book, Sources of the Self, The Making of the Modern Identity, uh, is so informative here. And uh, this book, as you mentioned, Carl, this book had a particular influence on your your argument. And I th- in a number of points, Taylor, though there are others as well, um, they they do point us uh, beyond just you know our our the sexual revolution of of recent days to say something. There's been a a new priority, maybe we could call it that, or a prioritization of uh, feelings, intuitions. Um, so, some have called it a, a type of inner psychology. Uh, whatever language is used, uh, I, I think one of the points that that Taylor is trying to make is there's been a turn inward, and, and you even capitalize on this, Carl, when you talk about happiness. You know, if we were to ask, well, what is it that that makes our existence authentic? Um, I think many in society today would try to find hap- would go to happiness, but but look inward rather than outward. And uh, one of the points you make is that, well, when we, when we shift in that direction, that actually changes the rules of the game. It's not just that we end up in a different place in terms of, say, uh, sexual uh, identity and um, the language of, that, that goes with it, but we actually change the rules of, of the game. Why, why do you think, Carl, why is it that... It's not just that, uh, say, you know, pornography or homosexuality, sex outside of marriage. I mean, these things have been around since then. <laughs> uh, something's changed, though, with the normalization uh, of these and, and many other things today um, so that it's not so much a stigma anymore. The actual language we use tends to normalize it. Why has that occurred exactly? Yeah, again, very good question. And there is no single answer to that because a whole host of things come together in order to make pornography, for example, mainstream and and, and normal in our society. But I would, I would say a couple of, you know, we, we can isolate perhaps a couple of significant strands. One, I think the shift that, I don't use this terminology in the book, but we could, we could say there's a shift in how we understand uh, human purpose from what uh, Michael Sandel has called the the encumbered self to the unencumbered self, and that is, you know, how do we understand ourselves as individuals? Do we understand ourselves primarily as those who have obligations to others, or do we understand ourselves as those who only have obligations to ourselves? And as soon, you know, if you if you live in a world where the way you're taught to think is that you are encumbered with obligations, then you will tend to to find your satisfactions, you will tend to think of your happiness in terms of how you fulfill those obligations to others. So my grandfather, for example, I use him as as a foil to myself in the book. My grandfather's understanding of him his own self was he was somebody with obligations. He had an obligation to provide for his family, for example. He had an obligation to to work hard for his employer to earn the money he was given. So my grandfather's satisfactions in life were very much rooted in putting bread on the table for his family, putting shoes on his children's feet, getting paid 
uh, a fair day's wage for an honest, hard day's work. If you move, as I think we've done in our world, to the, the unencumbered self, where the self is first of all conceived of as free and independent, and as having rights, if you like, rather than duties and obligations, then inevitably we tend to think of the world around us, and we also tend to think of our personal satisfaction in terms of the the meeting of our own intrinsic needs. So for me, job satisfaction is less connected to putting bread on the table, putting shoes on, on uh, well, my children have left home now. My, my wife loves buying shoes, but my <laughs> satisfaction is not so much connected to buying her shoes as it is to the, the psychological buzz I get from giving a good class, from seeing light bulbs go on in kids' eyes when I'm explaining a difficult concept to them. And it's not because the light bulbs are going off in their eyes. It's because I find that satisfying that's giving me the buzz. So there's that side of things where we shift, I think, in the, in the late modern age to very much prioritizing our own feelings, our own psychological satisfaction and happiness as being the thing that we are most obliged to. Then on something like pornography, uh, clearly technology plays a role. Uh, when I was growing up, pornography existed, yes. But you've got to take the risk of buying that magazine in the newsagents or being seen going into that dubious bookstore downtown by the neighbor who would report it to your parents or whatever. And you could end up shamed and in trouble. The very privacy of something like Internet pornography or I mean, we all know everybody's being watched all the time now, but. The feeling that it's private, we're doing these things in private, uh, allows us to, to do them more freely. And of course, the more people do these things in private, the more normal we start to think it is in public. So technology also erodes uh, the old uh, standards as well. So there are various things playing into this, but I think the key one is this shift on the understanding of the self that we now tend to think of ourselves as unencumbered uh, as or the, use the terminology I use in the book as expressive individuals mm. who are most authentic when we are able to act outwardly on those things that really define us, our inward feelings and our inward desires. Now, that phrase you just used, expressive individualism, is so key. And I, I, I want to just hold on to it for a second and before we, we move on. Because I think sometimes, uh, as you and I both know, when we listen to those in maybe more conservative circles, uh, there tends to be maybe a finger pointing to say, oh, that expressive individualism, that's out there. Uh, that, that's their problem. Let's blame them. You make a great point, though, when you say that there's a tendency among social conservatives to blame expressive individualism for the problem, the many problems, in fact, that uh, they regard as currently putting a strain on the liberal Western order. But then you argue, hold on a second, because uh, the difficulty with putting the blame over there is that we we forget no this has actually affected all of us this is something that all of us have have experienced in, in maybe different ways and maybe sometimes even without knowing it you even say it's the very essence of the culture of which we are a part uh, we we are all expressive individuals now that's a jarring statement for many i imagine but i think you make you actually have a point there why is it that it's so important to see this expressive individualism as something that is us now, here, in the present, uh, something that we, we've actually embodied in some ways without realizing it? I think it's important, for, particularly from a Christian perspective, because it allows us to avoid the Pharisee's prayer. We thank you, Lord, that we're not like other men, mm. like the LGBTQ plus people over here or like the, the consumerists over here, the expressive individualists. I think once we realize that we are all uh, complicit in this culture of expressive individualism, then it, it really encourages us to, to make our, our first move one of, I would say, confession and repentance. 
And it's important in these days to to avoid being Pharisees and to understand our own complicity in the sins of the culture around us. Now, some listeners may want to push back at this point and say, well, yeah, no, I'm not an expressive individualist. Well, I'm inclined to say at that point, I'm afraid you can't help be anything but <laughs> in this world because the essence of expressive individualism, the outward expression of it, is choice. And we live in a world full of choices. We choose which churches to belong to. We may like to think that, well, I go to this church because it is the church with the truth. But if we're brutally honest with ourselves, often we choose our churches not simply because the gospel is preached there, but also because the worship style happens to appeal to us, whether it's traditional or contemporary. We like the pastor. We like the people there. Uh, we tend, certainly Protestants, I think uh, it's less true of Catholics and, and Orthodox, but certainly as Protestants, uh, we tend to move from church to church when the church ceases to meet our particular need at some point. So I think there's plenty of evidence, in, in uh, certainly in Protestant Christianity, that we partake of this this expressive individualism, this belief that, hey, we should be able to express ourselves through worship. We should find our needs met by the church that we see rampant in other secular parts of society. Now, Carl, you are a historian by trade, though I, I will admit uh, whenever you publish a book, even if it's not on history, I enjoy reading it uh, because you tend to uh, bring out so many of the uh, foundational issues, uh, whether you're looking at, say, John Owen, uh, whether you're looking at the English Reformation, uh, whether you're looking at someone like Martin Luther. But I think in your most recent book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, this becomes especially, uh, especially important for, for the task of what you're trying to accomplish. You're a historian, and part of, of your job here is, is to say, well, if everything you've just said is true, then we need to look at the context and actually what you call the causal context. Uh, in other words, the sexual revolution doesn't cause the sexual revolution. It, it, it doesn't come out of a vacuum. It doesn't come out of nowhere. It, it actually has a cause. And, and you spend a lot of time then uh, looking at the story behind the story, uh, going back to say, well, how have we not just redefined what it means, uh, what what it means to be male or female, for example? But but could there be something more? And, and we've already alluded to, to that already. How you you get into the story of self and how self and what it means to even be a human being has been redefined. Uh, one of the things I appreciate about that approach is you look at figures, not just recent figures, but but older figures like Friedrich Nietzsche. Uh, and here you, you, you look at the self and, and you try to understand, okay, how is he, how is Nietzsche responding to say the enlightenment? And this, I think is, is just pivotal to later discussions that you get into, uh, with someone like Freud, for example, who, who then is going to build on this foundation to say, okay, if that's how we redefine the self, then, then let's now start talking about, uh, human identity, male, female, and so on. So, so maybe we could just start uh, with Nietzsche. You know, we we all know uh, it, it, most who have taken, say, an undergraduate class, maybe in philosophy, for example, are probably somewhat familiar with that that famous statement by Nietzsche, where he well, it's actually not not just a sentence; it's, it's a whole book where he goes on and on to describe. God as someone who is dead. And, and by that, he's not, we tend to think of, say, you know, the contemporary atheist, but, but he's actually saying much more than that. I, I think, for example, of his book, The Gay Science, and how he, in a very clever way, he turns to the madman and uh, begins to tell this story about uh, the madman who jumps into the middle of this group and says, "Whither is God?" And and then he concludes, "We've killed him." Uh, what exactly is is Nietzsche after here? I think the the point of the madman anecdote is is it really goes to the heart of Nietzsche's concerns about the Enlightenment. Specifically, I think Immanuel Kant. Kant is 
for Nietzsche, Kant is the great spider at the center of the metaphysical web. Uh, he will use this language of Kant as spider uh, in his work. And I think what, what Nietzsche is doing there is essentially saying that the Enlightenment thinkers have got rid of God. And you know, Nietzsche has no dispute with getting rid of God. He doesn't think he exists. But what they've tried to do uh, thereafter is is get rid of God, but keep what we would now call the sort of the, the polite bourgeois morality that was built upon God. And Nietzsche is essentially calling their bluff. He's saying you can't do that. If you get rid of God, then everything changes. He has a, a term, it's in, in English, we, we use the term, Nietzsche calls for a transvaluation of all values. What he's saying is if God goes, then everything that Western society built upon the existence of God, specifically its notions of good and evil, uh, of human nature, of the purpose of human life, all of these things have got to be radically revised because the foundation has gone. You know, the Madman incident is interesting because the Madman uh, only goes into the churches after he's harangued the atheists in the marketplace. And it indicates that you know, I don't think Nietzsche has much time for religious people at all. His real target are the, the sort of the clever Enlightenment atheists. And the way that sort of plays out, I would say, in modern society is this. You could boil, I, I, I think there are, two, there are two sort of strands I would pick up from Nietzsche that play out in, in the way we imagine the world to be today. One is that Nietzsche really gets rid of the notion of human nature. Now, again, listeners might say, are you saying that Nietzsche doesn't understand there's a difference between human beings and gorillas and cows and goldfish? Not at all. I, I think Nietzsche has a, you know, a, an understanding, if you like, of, of biological humanity. What Nietzsche is getting rid of is the idea that human nature uh, has any universal significance to which each and every individual human being, of which each and every individual human being has to take account. In other words, human nature has no moral structure. There's no transcendent moral structure there that requires each and every human being to, to find out what it means to be human and then conform uh, him or herself to it. So first thing is he gets rid of human nature. Second thing is in, in place of you know, the old Aristotelian or Christian notion of human nature as having a structure and shape and therefore individuals having to conform themselves to it. Nietzsche calls for every individual to be an artist. Uh, the key thing for Nietzsche, once you've got rid of this metaphysical uh, hogwash uh, flowing from Christianity through Kant uh, onwards, uh, once you've got rid of that, for Nietzsche, the challenge for each and every person is to, to make their own lives a work of art, to be a, a creative artist, to make their own meaning, to make their own lives significant in some way. So those, I think, are the two ways that Nietzsche has played out in, in the modern world. Um, the idea of a transcendent morality, well, yeah. nobody believes in that anymore, uh, outside of uh, the kind of circles that we mix in, uh, uh, Matthew. And the notion that, that human life is all about performance and making your own meaning, that's something that grips the modern imagination in a very, very powerful way. Perhaps one way... Uh, we could contrast uh, what Nietzsche is doing with, say, you know, certain Enlightenment figures. Um, well, you you yourself make this contrast between Nietzsche and Hume, uh, and I thought this was uh, so so clarifying. Uh, on the one hand, you know, if we were to ask the question, how do both of these figures perceive Christianity? Uh, you make a, the point that well, Hume would laugh. I uh, but Nietzsche, he, he would feel sick to his stomach. He, he would feel nauseated. Yeah. Uh, Hume would, would look at Christianity and laugh because he would say, this is epistemologically indefensible. In some sense, he, would, he thinks Christianity is a joke. But Nietzsche, in one sense, takes Christianity serious enough to be disgusted by it. Yeah. Uh, in, in other words, he thinks it's morally repugnant, as you say. Why? And I think this is so important to touch on because sometimes I think Christians engage with Nietzsche and they don't take Nietzsche seriously because they just 
interpret his objections more in the enlightenment vein. But you make the point, no, he's actually, he actually has his own critique of the enlightenment. And that actually makes his critique of Christianity uh, all the more radical in a sense. What, what is what is driving – well, let me put it this way. Why is it that when Nietzsche looks at Christianity, uh, he feels – he just feels like vomiting? <laughs> yeah, again, it's, uh, it's an interesting question. I, and I think that you know, one of the things that a lot of 19th century figures – and I throw Karl Marx into this as well – the persistence of religion is a problem for them. Uh, precisely because they think the Enlightenment, for all of Nietzsche's anti-Enlightenment instincts, they think the Enlightenment has done a good job of getting rid of God, that, that really belief in God is no longer defensible as far as they're concerned. But that then raises the question of why does belief in God persist? And Nietzsche's answer is really a psychological one. A belief in God fulfills a psychological need. Well, what psychological need does it fulfill? It fulfills the psychological need of the weak to justify their weakness and indeed to, to manipulate, to weaken, to undermine the strong. Uh, Nietzsche really thinks that the, you know, the creative human being, the artist, the one who has the courage to stand on their own two feet and create, that's power. To create one's own meaning, that is power. To submit oneself to meaning as generated by others, that's weakness. And Christianity, of course, with its universal claims, is for Nietzsche the epitome of that manipulative claim to transcendence that makes the individual weak. And worst of all, of course, uh, Christianity uh, actually... Uh, deifies weakness by having its God die on a cross. Uh, in his work, The Antichrist, Nietzsche, yeah, he, will, he, 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 he grudgingly acknowledges that the, the Jewish God of the Old Testament was at least a national God and justified the Jews feeling superior and strong to others and justified them. Uh, you know, engaging in war with others, justified strength in some way. The problem with Christianity is Christianity universalizes the Jewish God. So he, do, he ceases to be a source of strength for a particular individual or a particular group and actually becomes an excuse for weakness. And it's that that really uh, distresses uh, or disgusts Nietzsche. And of course, that notion of, you know, to track down to the modern age, that notion of religion as that which prevents us from being ourselves, religion as that which manipulates us, that lies very deep in uh, the tendencies of, uh, of modern culture. You could go to uh, the Supreme Court case, uh, 2013, uh, United States v. Windsor which is the Supreme Court case that overthrows the Defense of Marriage Act and really paves the way for gay marriage to be protected by the Constitution. What's interesting in that judgment in the Supreme Court is that the Supreme Court makes the point uh, that the only reason to object to gay marriage would be to marginalize a particular sector of society, the gay community. And that's really, that's a Nietzschean critique of religious morality in many ways. The only reason to hold to a religious position on this, it's not that the religion is true. It's because the people holding that position are using that position to, to weaken, to marginalize another. So it's, you know, the Supreme Court has sort of codified Nietzscheanism in one of its key uh, presidential uh, rulings in the last decade. Many look at Nietzsche, many Christians, for example, look at Nietzsche and this whole paradigm you've just described, and they jump to the maybe the assumption that, well, what does Nietzsche have to offer instead? And they think, uh, well, Nietzsche must think that there's no meaning in life. It's not even worth living. Uh, but that's actually not quite correct, is it? Uh, what, Nietzsche would actually put forward uh, a proposal despite his, his very vicious criticisms that you just mentioned, uh, he would actually put forward a proposal for human purpose, uh, 
pleasure. Uh, you mentioned that phrase self creation. Uh, how does it, how did exactly does he do that? And, and maybe you could to, could take us a step further. What what kind of human nature does he leave us with in in the end? Yeah, I, I think that it's wrong to see Nietzsche as a complete nihilist. And you know, the tendency of Christians is to think that, and, and this is an odd way of putting it, but to think that if uh, if life is ultimately meaningless, then it's not worth living. And I think Nietzsche would deny would deny the logical connection of those two things. For Nietzsche, yes, life is meaningless in, the, in a transcendent sense, but that doesn't mean it isn't worth living in the here and now. What it, makes it worth living in the here and now? Well, he engages in this thought experiment when he says, you know, what, what would happen one day if a, if a demon came to you and said, okay, you've got to live your whole life again and again, every single moment of your life. Would that drive you to despair or would you rise to the challenge? And I think what Nietzsche's doing there, he's not, he doesn't believe that life is going, to, is going to eternally recur. But what he's trying to do is focus our attention on, on every, live every second as if it were going to come back for all eternity. Uh, make sure that everything you do in your life gives you that satisfaction here and now uh, that makes the moment worth living. Uh, and that, I think, is, is where Nietzsche goes with that. And that raised the question, okay, so what would the, who would the ideal individual be? Well, he has this concept of the Superman. That has unfortunate comic book superhero kind of connotations <laughs> now. The Ubermensch, the Overman is sometimes translated. Uh, some have, uh, have seen unfortunate connections that I think are entirely specious between Nietzsche's thinking of the Superman and, and Hitler's notion of a master race. Uh, Nietzsche was not an anti-Semite, so that, that connection doesn't really work. Uh, Nietzsche himself identifies the closest thing he's seen to the overman is the, the, the great uh, uh, Goethe, the German poet, playwright, statesman, landscape gardener, you name it, Goethe was brilliant at it. He was the man who sort of transcended the spirit of his age in, in every department. Uh, I think another contender for the, the, the idea of an overman would be Oscar Wilde. His whole life was a public performance. He was a transgressor. Uh, he was an individual. If you read Wilde's De Profundis, his reflection upon Christ, uh, what is he like about Christ? Well, for, for, Christ, for, for Wilde, Christ greatness lies in the fact that he is the, the supreme artistic individualist. I mean, it's complete biblical nonsense. But I think that's the kind of person that Nietzsche would look for. Uh, the individual who breaks with the herd, who creates themselves, who dares to sort of plow their own furrow. Uh, the supreme artist, the one whose life is constant self-invention. Maybe in our own day and generation, well, maybe Madonna from the 80s and 90s, maybe Lady Gaga today. Artists who are constantly reinventing themselves. I think that captures something of the Nietzschean spirit. Carl, let's, let's uh, do an experiment here. Um, let's say uh, we put Nietzsche and Sigmund Freud in the same room, and we sit them down across the table from one another, as we've been talking about, Nietzsche has revolutionized the self. But Freud is going to turn our attention now to, well, sex. And for Freud, sex is going to be defining. I mean, it's, it's going to be quite essential to what Freud thinks the human person is and, and its purpose and maybe even explain uh, some of its where it's gone wrong. How exactly, if the, these two are sitting, sitting across the table from one another, how exactly does Freud get there? <laughs> well, I think there are some interesting connections between Nietzsche and Freud. It's said that Freud would not never read Nietzsche because he was terrified that Nietzsche would have anticipated philosophically so many of the things that Freud put forward as scientific ideas. I think there are a couple of things that bind them together. One, both of them see uh, a will to power, a, a profound, destructive, assertive and destructive dimension to human nature. 
both of them are separate from uh, the Rousseaus or the Kants of the Enlightenment by, by, by making a significant place for what we would certainly as Christians call kind of darkness at the heart of human nature. We would say fallen human nature for them, for Nietzsche, for Freud, it was just uh, the way it is. So certainly they would have that in common. Secondly, I think the whole idea of transcendent morality uh, is is meaningless to both of them. Nietzsche has no interest in morality. He thinks it's simply a manipulative ploy uh, by the weak to make the strong weak. Uh, Freud would sort of agree, but think that that's not a bad thing, actually. If you're going to have civilization, if people are going to live together and live for any length of time, not descend into bloody destructive chaos, then you need morality. Freud doesn't think morality has any transcendent basis, but you need practical norms of behavior reinforced, say, by notions of religion, etc., etc., in order to curb those dark and destructive instincts that lie at the heart of the human soul. So there are certain things they, they, they definitely hold in common. Where Freud, I think, uh, moves on and, from Nietzsche in, in two ways. One, Freud expresses his ideas in a scientific idiom. At a point in time, late 19th, early 20th century, when the scientific idiom is beginning to become the dominant plausible idiom for expressing truth uh, in the West. We have a little taste of that this last year. How often have we heard the phrase, you know, follow the science? Uh, as if, you know, science is a comprehensive account of, of reality. Well, that statement is only plausible in a world where, where science has become the dominant way of thinking uh, about the world. So Freud has that in his favor. And secondly, uh, Freud identifies this, this sort of will to power, this will to assert oneself, this will to self-create, more than anything else with the, uh, the libido, the sex drive. And uh, what Freud does by doing that is, is he becomes the most articulate uh, spokesman of a tendency that emerges in the late 19th and on into the 20th century to make identity at its foundation, sexual, to make it something determined ultimately by sexual desire or desires. And that's critical to the way we think today, when we think today about uh, you know, the LGBTQ plus movement. When you think about that movement, by and large, most of those letters refer to people who identify themselves by the erotic desires they experience and then by the sexual activities in which they engage. If you were to go back to ancient Greece, there are no homosexuals in ancient Greece. There's plenty of people engaging in homosexual activity, but nobody's identifying themselves by that activity or by that desire. Our imaginations now are gripped by the idea of our sexual desires being fundamentally determinative of who we are, which is why sex education in schools has become... Uh, uh, so significant because education about desire becomes education about the kind of person an individual is allowed to be. We're recording this on the day when one of the Wiggles, an Australian uh, children's program, <laughs> one of the furry characters in the Wiggles has come out as non-binary. Uh, well, why on earth do we need a, a children's character telling us about their sexual orientation or their gender identity. Well, we don't, except in a world where we've come to think that those things are foundational, fundamental to our identity from infancy onwards. Carl, the when we shift the whole paradigm to say this now is uh, essential to our identity, uh, maybe we could use a, a word like reconfigure. When we reconfigure uh, who we are, it's not just reconfiguring who we were in the past or the present, but, but even the future. So, so that's, we're looking at ourselves now and saying, okay, this new creation, this self creation that I am going to label myself, uh, this, this is now what defines me, but, but it also affects the future it it it, reflect, it 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 actually moves us to redefine our purpose going forward 
and I guess where I'm going with this statement is this: uh, we tend, at least in society, when when this when we do this, we tend to think, "Oh, we are so free, we've liberated ourselves," and the narrative, at least, then looks at Christians and says, "Oh, you you're still enslaving people in those traditional uh, religious." Uh, convictions, values, beliefs, and sexual codes. So a- as we bring our conversation to a close here, how would you counter that type of narrative? A- and what advice would you give to to Christians and pastors, even uh, Christian scholars out there to say, number one, don't buy into that narrative. And, and number two, what do, what do we do? How do we counter it? How, how do we actually uh, present a future uh, that says otherwise? Good question again. I th- and I think what, what you're saying there, we, we really have the clash here of two different approaches to the world. Uh, the one that says the world has structure and meaning. We flourish as human beings by conforming ourselves to that structure and meaning and that purpose. Uh, and the other, the other view says, no, the world has no structure and meaning. We are free to behave in any way we wish uh, and hope that, that technology, for example, will enable us to escape the, the physical consequences or whatever of, of what we're facing. Uh, I think that's the sort of the, the clash we're seeing here. Uh, how do we counter that narrative of, hey, you're a free-floating agent and you can be whatever you want to be? I think it's hard. I think ultimately uh, fallen human nature tilts towards believing that narrative. I, at Grove, when I teach on Rousseau, I, I throw out that uh, statement by Rousseau from the social contract. A man is born free and everywhere is in chains. And I say, never did a philosopher write a more self-evidently nonsensical uh, sentence. Man is not born free. Man is born utterly dependent upon other people. Leave a newborn baby out in the woods. He's dead. She's dead in two days. We are utterly dependent when we're born. We are absolutely connected to other people. And yet that's that phrase, man is born free and everywhere is in chains, in some ways is the watchword of the, mor- of the modern world. So our fallen human nature tilts strongly towards believing this nonsense. So we're up against it. So on one level, you've got to say, you know, this is a supernatural thing. Yeah, your arguments aren't going to carry the day all the way. Uh, this kind comes out only with prayer and fasting, one might, one might comment. Having said that, I do think there are things that pastors can avail themselves of, and, and I am more and more convinced that pastors need to get hold of statistics, and they need to get hold of statistics from uh, reputable, non-religious sources. Because when you get hold of the statistics about what the, the male gay lifestyle does to life expectancy, what it does to physical health, what it does to mental health. When you get hold of statistics about what gender transition surgery does and does not do for the individuals going through it, uh, when you come up with the statistics, you may not be able to persuade somebody of the, the Christian way of life, but you could certainly demonstrate to them that many of the alternatives out there, particularly those associated with the sexual revolution, are not leading individuals to flourish. Mm. If anything, they are doing very much the opposite. So I I was at a lecture a few weeks ago by a Catholic priest on defending the, the the title was Defending Catholic Moral Teaching Today. And I went to the lecture and thought, wow, that's a high bar he's setting himself. (laughs) It's even higher than Protestant moral teaching, you know. Uh, and I was impressed that what he did was on every point of Catholic moral teaching, he got statistics. He got statistics mm. about what easy divorce does to families. He got statistics about what gay sex does to uh, to people's bodies, uh, mental health. It was impressive, the statistics he garnered. And I think, Matthew, what we need to do is is get good statistics into the hands of pastors. It may not convert anybody. It may help persuade a lot of younger Christians that, yeah, the Bible doesn't just say these things are wrong. The Bible actually says they're wrong for a reason beyond the mere whim of God, Mm. that actually Christian morality reflects 
something of the moral, even the physical structure of the universe in which we find ourselves. So I would say the way to out-narrate these people is to, I hesitate to say, beat them at their own game, but go to some statistics that they've got to face up to, that they have to face up to and take account of. Carl, it sounds like, it, I can't help but, but uh, throw in one more question in here to stir things up, but uh, it sounds like, um, you know, that old approach of just kind of throw a Bible verse at the problem and uh, just kind of, you know, wipe your hands and walk away. It sounds like uh, that's actually not going to work. That uh, <laughs> you, it sounds like Carl Truman might actually believe in, uh, say, a natural theology rightly understood. Yeah, like sort of most Orthodox Christians <laughs> since uh, since the Apostle Paul. Um, I mean, I do. I, I think we we need to realize that we're actually facing a very different situation in the West to that which we faced forty, fifty years ago, where the the intuitions of the secular culture tracked with Christian morality. It was easy to point younger Christians to Bible verses and for them to find them immediately plausible. Now that the wider morality of this world is uh, antithetical to much of what the Bible teaches. We don't have that benefit anymore. Now, I, I teach at a Christian liberal arts college. I know that when kids ask me about some of these issues and I point them to Bible verses, that's enough for them on a pure authority basis. Okay, the Bible says that. I'm required to believe it. But I know that they have gay friends. I know that many people in churches now, parents, have gay children. And when the emotions pull at the heartstrings, that can lead to, well, I, I know that's what the Bible says that, but am I reading the Bible correctly? Or, or does God just say that because he's really a mean God mm. and he wants my gay friend or my gay child to, to, to have a miserable life? And I think we have to take that into account pastorally when we're trying to persuade even Christians of the uh, morality that the Bible teaches. So I think that we should not eschew, um, as you say, natural theology, general revelation, however one wants to construe it. I think these things are important pastoral tools today. Simply shouting Bible verses loud enough will not be a persuasive strategy at this particular point in time. Praise God, he can use that strategy. If the word is proclaimed, the spirit can use the word. I'm not saying it will never work, but I'm saying it behooves us to to broaden our strategy from a human perspective in order to be pastoral and persuasive. We've been talking to Carl Truman, professor at Grove City College, uh, author of many books, including The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, as well as many other books on uh, historical figures and even theology. Uh, Carl, what a joy it's been. Uh, I always always enjoy uh, talking with you uh, because of, well, you're a historian, but also because uh, you're not just a historian. Uh, you're a historian who very much is a theologian and one with a pastor's heart. Thank you so much, Carl, for joining me on the Credo Podcast. It's a great pleasure to be here, Matthew. Thanks for having me on. Now you can fill up on theology each day by visiting credomag.com. There you will find the latest issues of Credo Magazine with articles on key doctrines of the faith and regular video interviews with Dr. Matthew Barrett, where he answers some of the toughest theological questions of our day. Be sure to subscribe to Credo Podcasts to join the conversation, a conversation where doctrine matters.